Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. The year is 1999, and the first rule of podcasting Ugh, is... Paul, the second rule is don't give us that kind of tedious intro. I know, it's been done too much. The movie, Fight Club. Welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shearer, joined as always by Amy Nicholson. We talk about movies, good movies, great movies, movies that people hold up, put up on a pedestal. And we ask the question, are they really good or are they just remembered that way? That's right. This week, we are talking about another misunderstood classic, cult classic, a failure when it came out, but a hit in the years since the 1999 David Fincher Fight Club. Is it his best movie, Amy? We'll get into it. But also, did people miss the point multiple times by it being a flop and also what they got out of it when it was a cult hit? Yeah. Can we talk about it without saying that we think this movie is saying things that maybe it's actually not even saying? Because this movie is saying a lot. If we're on a path of unreliable narrators coming out of election, this is top 20 unreliable narrator. Oh, 100%. I think what I really like about this movie is it has a giant twist and Fincher isn't precious. It It's an earned twist. I really think that when you go back and rewatch it, he is telling you multiple times it's here. We're going to talk about how he calls it out baldly. And I think that that's what makes this movie's twist not feel hacky. Yeah. And it does that good thing where it doesn't end with the twist. Like, ta-da, here I am, Kaiser Soze. It like announces the twist early enough that then we get to grapple with the twist and fight with the twist and try to make the twist work for us. All right, Amy, couple rules before we get started today. No shirts, but also if you tap out, we have to respect it. It's time for us to unspool it. 
The year is 1999, and David Fincher has, in his own words, tricked 20th Century Fox into making a $75 million experimental film. This is actually a movie that the studio has already rejected. When the original novel, Fight Club, landed on a reader's desk, the reader's report said, do not make this movie. (laughs) But Fox is making it. Even if most of the people at the studio aren't exactly sure why, including Fox corporate head Rupert Murdoch, who says the movie is violent and despicable. After the first test screening on the lot, an executive walked up to a producer and said, I'm going to call a therapist in here so you can explain to them in front of me why you think this is funny. (laughs) Fight Club is based on a book by Chuck Palahniuk, a truck mechanic from Portland. It's about disaffected men punching other disaffected men in the face or kind of rather getting punched in the face themselves so that they can feel alive in this empty, consumerist, modern lifestyle that has left them feeling domesticated and lost. The fighting in the movie is brutal, but what scares the studio even more is that this film takes aim at giant corporations like itself, and it wants to burn them all down. And at the end of the movie, it does. But, and I should say maybe not even but, but and, this movie also has a lot of other things going for it. The director, David Fincher, he had a big hit with Seven. The star of that, Brad Pitt, has signed on to play Tyler Durden, the cool guy, bruiser, who leads our hero down a dark path, or so our hero thinks. That other man, the nameless narrator, is played by Edward Norton. This is only Norton's sixth movie ever, all in the last three years, but he's clearly on the a role. He is being called the greatest actor of his generation. And then there's Helena Bonham Carter as Marla, the woman in the middle of a very bizarre love triangle. Now, people are confused when they see her name on the poster because until now, she's really just been the good British girl in corsets. Brad Pitt is the most expensive thing in this movie. His salary alone is $17.5 million. And the studio was freaking out about this because as another executive said, men do not want to see Brad Pitt without a shirt because it makes men feel bad about themselves. And women don't want to see Brad Pitt covered in blood. The movie opens on October 15th, 1999, and it is not a great success. It makes only $11 million that first weekend. David Fincher's hiding out in Bali being like, well, there goes years of my life. But on home video... Fight Club makes another $55 million and it eventually turns a profit and is now considered a major cinematic touchstone, even if Rupert Murdoch fired the Fox executive who greenlit the movie like immediately afterwards. (laughs) So what was in the zeitgeist that October 15th of 1999? Well, the weekend that this movie was released, the number one song on the charts was also kind of about a complicated relationship, like the one that Marla is having with this very confusing Edward Norton, Brad Pitt situation. It's a song with a little bit of back and forth. We hear what he thinks. We hear what she thinks. He, Jay-Z, is not into this. She likes to shop too much, but she also likes to fight. There's love and there's hate. This woman's getting impulsive tattoos. It's all very confusing. And she, in turn, sees Jay-Z as Marla does, as just a man who is a heartbreaker. 
It's Mariah Carey and Heartbreaker. She wanna pillow fight in the middle of the night. She wanna drive my bands with five of her friends. She wanna creep past the block, spying again. She wanna roll with Jay, chase skios away. She wanna fight with lame chicks, blow my day. She wanna respect the rest, kick me to the curb. If she find one strand ahead longer than her, she wanna love in the jacuzzi, uh-huh. rub up in the movie, uh-huh. access to the old crib, keys to the new. She wanna answer the phone, tattoo her arm. That's when I gotta send her back to her mom. She called me heartbreaker when we. I love it, Amy. I love it. And we're getting close to Mariah Carey season right now, uh, which is the season of Christmas. You know, now, I was hoping that it wouldn't be Mariah Carey with a number one hit. I I was hoping maybe Radiohead, because I know originally that's who Fincher wanted to score the entire movie. And I'm bummed about that because I feel like, you know, Fincher really has done something really interesting of late. You know, he's had Trent Reznor score some of his films. And Trent Reznor is amazing. And I think that Radiohead would have been really interesting for this film. I, I think it would have set a tone. I think it it's him looking forward a little bit with Radiohead as the primary person scoring this film. It didn't work out, but I think that you can see where his leanings start to go. I mean, that makes a lot of sense because I've read that like the day before they filmed the last shoot or like kind of the build up to the last night shoot that Brad Pitt and Edward Norton just sat and listened to OK Computer on repeat over and over again to kind of get in this headspace. And now that I'm thinking about it, OK Computer sounds so much like OK Boomer. It's like it's like we're looking at an old school, one of those like desktop Macs that were like hologram <laughs> orange being like, OK Computer, you're going you're gonna to become something else someday. It'll be fine. A new, new generation is coming. But that idea of like having an artist do the whole soundtrack, from everything I've read, that sounds like majorly important to Fincher that he was like, this will be a movie scored by a band. This will not be a movie scored by a composer. You know, that he was kind of leaning on this idea of this is my graduate. The graduate had Simon and Garfunkel and I will have the Dust Brothers. The Dust Brothers. There you go. Um, And not a bad band to have do all your music. But Radiohead, I think, actually captures something that this movie has especially OK Computer, right? Because there's something about that kind of detachment from what Radiohead did done before into doing this. It just feels like it actually captures these characters. It, they're kind of out of society in a way. Yeah, when I think about that album, it just makes me feel cold. It felt yes. like such a cold and chilly album. And it yeah. felt like, I remember when that album came out because suddenly Everybody I knew was listening to it. Every guy I ever tried to date in that whole stretch. Oh, that was course. like their favorite album. And you go over to their place and it's just chills, chills, chills running up and down your well, spine. I mean, that album is about alienation, right? In in a world which is becoming more reliant on technology. And this is a movie about alienation from a world where you are never going to be able to keep up with consumerism. You know, so there is similarity there. But this is a tough movie because I want to break it down. I also feel like we have to speak about all the different ways that this movie has affected culture. And that, to me, seems daunting. Very rarely am I daunted by this show. Wait, I'm so glad that you're feeling daunted because so was I. I just made myself some coffee right before I sat down because I'm very daunted yeah. to jump into this. I mean, even... You know, I'm a crazy note taker. So when I started to watch the movie again, I was taking my notes and I was like, this movie is so dense and so layered with like images and ideas and narration and things happening that it's almost impossible to even take notes to. There's just like too much happening. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on. And maybe what we should do to work up to the larger themes is talk about just the base level of what this movie is, right? What we're seeing. 
Yeah, this is a movie that comes out in 1999. It's a year in which Napster, MySpace, they both come out. Bluetooth is released. SpongeBob premieres. Bill Clinton is acquitted. Uh, later in the year, after they had finished making this movie, the Columbine shooting happened. But there's also this looming fear, and I don't remember when it started, of Y2K. This idea that in 2000, none of the computers were ready for it. <laughs> they were just going to flip. And that was a very real fear. Like, what would happen? Would we lose all of our money? Will all the ATMs be shut down, right? This idea of technology maybe not being up for the challenge. Like, we've moved too quickly. And I think all that sort of stuff is like punctuating this worldview here as we go into 2000. I, I think that that's a very important part of this malaise that we're still in to this day of, of consumerism, of technology, and feeling detached from what we're doing. Why are we doing what we're doing? I think that that's a question that, you know, probably is a universal question, but it's, it's amping up more in this time. I think it's even amping yeah. up more now than ever. Well, and it's interesting because in this period, this is not a movie about technology. You know, like The no. Matrix is a movie about technology, but this is a movie about people meeting up in person and doing things that are not technology. But revolting against it, right? Because it's like, yeah, yes, because Ikea. one of the things they blow up is like a computer store. Like they, right. they're they're blowing up things. But this is like so pre-internet technology that, you know, when he's on the phone with Ikea, he's on the phone with Ikea. He's exactly. not ordering online. He's right. like talking to Ikea. Like so many others, I had become a slave to the Ikea nesting instinct. Uh, yes, I'd like to order the Erica Picari dust ruffles. If I saw something clever, like a little coffee table in the shape of a yin-yang, I had to have it. The Klipsk personal office unit, the Hovatrek home exerbike, or the Yohanishov sofa with the string green stripe pattern. Even the Rizlampa wire lamps of environmentally friendly unbleached paper. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? I had it all. Even the glass dishes with tiny bubbles and imperfections, proof that they were crafted by the honest, simple, hardworking, indigenous peoples of wherever. But it's in that liminal state. It's like, it's almost like this movie feels like you just did heroin twice. You know, yeah. and heroin is the computer. But it's like, yes. you've done it twice. You're like, this is kind of great. Maybe I shouldn't do this again. I'm probably going to do this again. But you're not like in the full throws of heroin. This is my yes. idea of heroin. I'm sorry. I've never tried heroin. I, I'm just by the guessing. way, I neither have I, but I liked your description of it. I, let's. Yeah. You're like, this, this could be cool. You're I don't in, know. Yeah. yeah. All right. Third time's for charm. <laughs> yeah. But I can already uh, feel like that that this might also destroy my life. You know, it, paranoia. Exactly like you're saying. You're, we're paranoid about where computers are going in our life. Now we know. Now we're like, computers fucked it up. But we didn't yeah. know that yet. And it's still going to continue to fuck it up. Or are we still in a perennial state of being afraid of the future, but we're moving forward? I mean, who knows? Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. 
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. I'll say this. Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote this book, thinks that the movie is better than his book. And let's even go back to where Chuck kind of comes up with this book. Chuck wrote this book after sustaining injuries from getting beaten up on a camping trip because he complained about like a nearby camper's noise level. And then he went back to work and none of his coworkers would acknowledge his wounds. And he concluded that if they were to inquire about his injuries, this would require a degree of personal interaction. And this concept of societal blocking really is what inspired the novel. I think that David Fincher really elevates this, and I think that Brad Pitt and David Fincher together creates a lot of new material for this book. Like They apparently spent many a night drinking Mountain Dews and talking about society and and these lines that we know from Fight Club were kind of developed by those work sessions. Um, But that's at least the original idea, the idea that like people don't want to ask anything too personal. Yeah. They, they, you know, they people are are willing and okay with keeping a distance. I mean, I have a little bit of that in me and I hate that sort of, I get like really antsy about asking people personal questions or I never know how to handle things. Like last night I ran into a friend of mine who I haven't seen his girlfriend around in three months. And it's like, I wasn't sure if it was the time to ask if they broke up and he was never going to, you know what I mean? Oh, I, I, I am the king of knowing I shouldn't ask about a partner and then asking about it anyway. Like whenever I ask you about your partner, you have broken up and I do it <laughs> all the time. And I do find myself pulling back sometimes uh, from leaning in because I'm like, oh, if they want to share it, they should. And you see so much online now that you don't even attempt to communicate the oh, congratulations, or the, oh, I'm so sorry, besides a heart or a like yeah. or, a, you know, good for you. Then that's the worst thing because sometimes I'll forget. Like sometimes somebody's like, parent will die and I'll heart it and I'll write a little thing or their pet will die and I'll heart it and write a thing. But because I didn't hear it from them, I'll forget. And then the next time I see them, I won't remember to actually yeah. acknowledge it. You know, because it, like, it, like, it happened, but it happened in a space that didn't feel real. But again, we're... We're digressing yeah. down a, a hole, but I think I mean, we we're, are, but we're also like, we're talking about like kind of the, what drives Chuck Palahniuk, that Chuck Palahniuk is a guy who like says that he actively works to confront his fears. Like one of the things he does is that he volunteers at shelters because he's terrified that someday he's going to wind up living on the streets. Or like he also volunteers at hospices because he's terrified of death. And so like being around death is like him confronting death and trying to grapple with it. Whereas I'm a person who's like, I'm never going to die. And I just don't even think about it. Well, I, first of all, I love that. Wait, have I never told you that story? No. Of my first childhood memory? I have two first childhood memories. But like one of them is I was sitting in my room. I was probably three or four. And I was putting 
chocolate jelly beans and tiny cups of toy set water, you know, to make like chocolate milk, I thought. And I was sitting in my room by myself and I remember thinking, I'm never going to die because I'm young enough that they're going to solve death by the time I have to worry about it. So I'm fine. And I just like absorbed that as a child. And then the older I get, the more I'm like, I thought they'd solve death by now. I hope they don't solve it when I'm 80 because I'd like to stay in a limber body. It's like I've never really shaken this certainty I felt as a child. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I love that. And I wish we all had a little bit of that. But I do think that this idea of feeling so disconnected from everyone is really easy to do. I've, I've been lucky. I've lived in big cities. I've heard that L.A. can be a very lonely place. You know, I I was lucky I came out here with someone I was dating, with a theater that I could perform at, with friends around. But I know a lot of people who move out here, you know, can feel like very caught in a very solitary existence. And the things become your friends, right? Like the having the thing. And I think that that's what we start to see with Ed Norton's character, this character who is, like you said, on the phone with Ikea, having this conversation, I would say the most personable conversation with an Ikea sales rep. That call that you just played is the best conversation we've really seen him have. Like he's listening. He's being told things by other people. He speaks about his single serving friends, but we don't really see him having a conversation. Even when he's talking to that first woman on the plane, he's talking at her, not to her. Yeah. He's talking at her and he's terrifying her because he's telling her about how cheap a human life is worth. Take the number of vehicles in the field, A, multiply it by the probable rate of failure, B, then multiply the result by the average out-of-court settlement, C, A times B times C equals X. If X is less than the cost of a recall, we don't do one. Are there a lot of these kinds of accidents? You wouldn't believe. Which car company do you work for? A major one. Yeah, no, you're right. And what we also hear in that IKEA conversation is like a thing that I think about a lot too, which is like the societal pressure to try to do good in a world that's like falling apart where you feel like it's all on your shoulders. When he says like, you know, he picks out his dinner plates because they're made by like indigenous people of wherever because he like, he wants to care, but he can't care, but he feels like he should care. And I, I feel so much pressure all the time about like, if I don't recycle a single can, the fact that the planet is ending is all my fault, you know? That like that pressure we feel to try to do right is is really exhausting. Well, he talks about the idea that these bowls have imperfections, which are important, but like the imperfections are manufactured, right? And this idea that he's doing all the signals that society says you should do to participate. You are caring. You're not really invested in it. Nothing is real. And, you know, this is a person who runs away from communication, but at the same time is saying, I want connection. I want communication because he's talking to himself. And most of the time when he's Tyler Durden, he's talking to other people. He's not having connection. The only thing he he longs to have is connection. And that connection is only with Marla. That like true conversation that we ever see in this movie is between him and Marla. And he's constantly pushing that away. Yeah. Like, because, you know, the first time he ever talks to Marla, when he's, they're sort of forced into a hug at a a group session, 
they realize that they feel exactly the same way about interaction. I mean, who is more like him than a woman who does exactly what he does, which is like going to other like support groups yeah. for problems that you don't have. And who is going for exactly the same reason? You know, that I, that line they have, when people think you're dying, they really listen to you instead of just waiting for their turn to speak. They are feeling the exact same way and he can't handle it. I was kind of laughing that we did this right after election because instead we're just getting him being like, let me tell you about this woman who is driving me nuts. And here's why. This chick, Marla Singer, did not have testicular cancer. She was a liar. She had no diseases at all. I had seen her at Free and Clear, my blood parasites group Thursdays, then at Hope, my bi-monthly sickle cell circle, and again at Seize the Day, my tuberculosis Friday night. Marla, the big tourist. Her lie reflected my lie. And suddenly, I felt nothing. I couldn't cry. And it's so fascinating. Did you know that they actually wanted Reese Witherspoon possibly for this role? That she came really, really high up on David Fincher's list? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that she was like a top, top contender. I mean, there's a lot of crazy contenders for this. Like, I think first they offered it to Janine Garofalo. And Edward Norton was like, I don't think she can handle it, which... I would have liked to see if she could handle it. I'm curious about that. But he like cut that one off. Then it was maybe going to be Courtney Love. Mm. But the story with that is like, there's like so many competing stories about why it was in Courtney Love. One of them is that David Fincher was nervous because she was dating Edward Norton at the time. And he thought if they had a relationship, it would throw off the whole thing. But the other story, according to Courtney, is that Gus Van Sant and Brad Pitt were trying to do a movie about Kurt. And when Brad Pitt asked her if they could have her blessing, she was like, no. Because I feel like you, Brad Pitt, do not understand me, Courtney Love. And if you do not understand me, then you do not understand Kurt. So you are not the guy to play Kurt Cobain. And Brad Pitt was so mad about it that he like insisted that she not be in the movie. That's the other story. Mm. Another person who was maybe going to be in it was like Winona Ryder. But David Fitcher was like, I think goth Winona Ryder is very overdone. He took a meeting with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, which I think is so strange. Wow. But the, like Reese, Reese really stood up there. But at the very last second, David Fincher was like, I think she's just a little bit too young. So instead of this movie, she did Election. What a diverse group of women. And I I think I could see elements of all of them. I could see Julia Louise-Dreyfus do this. Uh, I feel like the work that she's done with Nicole Hall Center is really interesting. And Oh, yeah. I could see it in that sense. I couldn't you know, at first. Yeah. You know, I, I also think that it was interesting that Brad Pitt was obviously a collaborator with Fincher, but the studio really wanted like Russell Crowe. Do you know that? Yeah. Isn't that weird? Because this is like when Russell Crowe's doing The Insider, when he's playing like anonymous middle-aged man. The him as Tyler Durden would be so weird. It it would be like brutal, right? It would be like more like, come with me, let's fuck it all up. But you'd be more like a hustler or something. Yeah. I think that, that both of these characters, you know, Brad Pitt's character, Tyler Durden, and the Marla character are interesting because like there is a sex appeal that they both have. Like when Helena Bonham Carter walks in, like she's, for lack of a better term, like a hot mess, right? You see the way she is, the the way her eye makeup is, the way that she just kind of carries herself. Yeah. Her hair is like inspired by a Maltese poodle that was on set. There's like whatever sticking out in all directions. I love that. And I think that like it was smart to pick somebody like her because like we mentioned, she was known as being like the British corset actress, right? She had just been in those types of movies. So to see her in a different way with no baggage, at the end of the day, 
Julia Louise Dreyfus at this point is carrying Seinfeld baggage. Winona Ryder is carrying baggage. Courtney Love is carrying baggage, right? Like you understand them when you look at them on some level. I think here you get the best of both worlds, which is you get this, this woman who has many of the attributes that these other actresses have, but you don't feel like you have a history with them. So you can kind of lean in and you don't know what to think of her. And Brad Pitt, who I think is interesting at this point too, has played a lot of, I mean, am I wrong in saying sexy dummies at this point? Yeah, he's coming off of like Meet Joe Black and oh, like one seven of the worst. years in Tibet. Like, yeah, that's kind of one of the things is like, what are the stories of this is like, Brad Pitt had to do this movie because he was losing his cool. But then David Fincher is like, if he had to do this movie, then he shouldn't have cost $17.5 million. Right. He didn't have to do this movie. But but to that point that you were making about, about Helena Bonham Carter really quick, I think what she really brings to this is like also a delicacy. Because like you can see that Marla is, you know, aggressive. She has exactly what she wants. She like barges through life. She's like stealing clothes from laundromats and then selling them like at the thrift store. She's like walking into traffic over and over again and never, ever, ever looking back and never getting hit. She's got this like, I do what I want kind of thing. But she's not running through life like a steamroller. You look at her and you're like, I also see that this woman is so fragile. Like, I believe that she could hurt herself. I believe that she need somebody to treat her nice, even if she can't have it. You know, when she has that little speech, you know, she comes into the kitchen after she's already like with Tyler Durden and has that conversation with Edward Norton about her dresses, like her bridesmaids dresses, like Helena Barnum Carter can sell also the fragility of her in that, her, like that. Absolutely. What if I got treated special? Wouldn't that be nice? Maybe I should probably have that, but I can't let myself. I got this dress at a thrift store for $1. It was worth every penny. It's a bridesmaid's dress. Someone loved it intensely for one day, then tossed it like a Christmas tree, so special. Then, bam, it's on the side of the road, tinsel still clinging to it, like a sex crime victim, underwear inside out, bound with electrical. Well, then it suits you. You can borrow it sometime. I love that scene. And, you know, this is one of the perfect scenes in the film where the magic trick is right in front of our eyes. You know, obviously, if you've seen this film, you know the twist, you know, that Tyler Durden is Ed Norton. Ed Norton is Tyler Durden. And she plays it. Like, when you rewatch this movie, she really is the only person that continually is telling the audience, like, I don't see what you're talking about. I don't see what you're talking about. And, and you can obviously, when you're watching it the second time, you see it. You see where she's signaling to the audience, like, no, no, there's not two of you. There's one of you. That sequence is kind of great. And when you watch it with that eye, their relationship is way more interesting because it's not just like a jealous friend who's upset that his cooler friend is fucking the girl that he wanted to to have sex with or whatever yeah. that dynamic Although he is. cannot right? admit it. Cannot admit no. it. Will not admit it. You're not into her, are you? No. God, not at all. I am Jack's raging bile duct. Are you sure? You can tell me. Believe me, I'm sure. Put a gun to my head and paint the walls with my brains. Well, that's good, because she's a predator posing as a house pet. Stay away from that one. You know, this idea of not admitting, right? This idea of not saying what's really on your mind is really 
the theme of Ed Norton's whole character. Like he can't, mm. he can't be who he wants to be. I love how Fincher though doesn't try to be too clever, right? Like it's very bald the way that the split is there, the Tyler Durden split. I mean, when you go back in the flashbacks and you see, <laughs> you know. They're doing like the splices, like the exorcist, kind of like, here he is. Here yes. he is. The, the way the exorcist kept flashing in devil cuts. But there's something interesting because like, oh, well, he was just beating himself up in the parking lot. Like, okay. Like, there are certain things I'm like, okay, yeah. that's that's a that's a reach. Well, apparently, like when Edward Norton would beat himself up, though, that's when he got the most hurt. In the scenes where he's like fake beating himself up. But it's what you're saying about like Helena stealing these scenes. You're watching her react to him being the same person. And the first time you watch this movie, it's almost natural to blame her. She like comes in the kitchen happy and then snaps and gets angry. And you're like, well, that fucking chick's crazy. But no, it's because he was suddenly a different person to her and she's confused and mad. And it's like interesting, that little kind of that spinning around on its axis. Well, you are constantly playing with this person who wants connection, but pushes it away. And that's the only our island in this movie is her. Right. That's the thing he's wrestling with. She is the more emotionally available version of Ed Norton. Right. Because she's going to these places. She wants to connect. She's giving herself to him, but he can't go there. He can't say what's on his mind. He can't even ask Tyler Durden to stay over. Like, he can't even say what he wants to his subconscious. You said something else that I want to just pick up on really quickly. You said that, you know, when Ed Norton beat himself up, it's when he actually got the most hurt. I will say, Edward Norton does beat himself up in that office scene where he goes and confronts his boss, who I love. I guess the movie is once again showing you that here it is. Yes, it's a little bit more believable that you actually see him do it. I mean, the physicalization of his work. I don't know. It's clown work. I don't know what you want to call it, but that fight work is amazing. Like it really is pretty impressive. That office scene. I was like, holy shit. He's got kind of this like bedraggled alley cat Buster Keaton thing, (laughs) like this crazy combination of like wet, frail, dangerous. And when he's in there talking about, you know, shooting up the office, like he seems terrifying. He seems like kind of the person who could absolutely do this, which I guess would make sense uh, clearly if you're like watching this for the first time in 1999. You're like, I remember that guy in American History X. I remember that guy in Primal Fear. Like, he is small and scary at once. I keep saying he's small, but he's actually not. He's like, do you want to guess how tall Edward Norton is actually? 5'10? Six foot. He's six foot. Whoa. Yeah. Pretty, he's taller than Brad Pitt. He's taller than uh, Meatloaf. Meatloaf had to wear eight inch lifts in the scenes where Bob is hugging him. So that Meatloaf can be like towering over him with all of his like mighty power. Norton's not a small guy, you know, he reads small, I guess, to me, because he's got like those narrow shoulders and stuff. And just like he can project such menace, though. Well, I got to tell you, I'd be very, very careful who you talk to about that, because the person who wrote that is dangerous. And this button down Oxford cloth psycho might just snap and then stalk from office to office with an Armalite AR-10 carbine gas-powered semi-automatic weapon, pumping round after round in the colleagues and co-workers. Actually, do you want to hear kind of like a weird backstory of Edward Norton as an actor, by the way? Because, you know, he's 29 yeah. when he makes this movie. He's a couple years younger than Brad Pitt. He got his star because of Primal Fear. Leonardo DiCaprio was supposed to do Primal Fear. And then Leonardo DiCaprio backed out 
And so the producers of Primal Fear were like, well, if we don't have our movie star, let's just throw this gigantic casting net. So Edward Norton shows up at like a just giant casting call. This character is from Eastern Kentucky and he lies. And he says his family is from Eastern Kentucky. And just like, is like, I just happen to be an actor from Kentucky who happens to be reading for this part. And like completely lies and sells everything and like gets, gets it, totally nails it. But it's almost kind of a mirror to... To Christian Bale getting American Psycho. It's like these two Leo roles and Leo backs out. And then they're like, well, I don't know. How about this nobody? And then you create a movie star, which is a thing that we need more of. I just want to talk about that role in Primal Fear. When I saw that, I was blown away by it because he has the everyman cute boyish look and then it could cover up this evil side. And I do think that the casting of him in this movie, once again... The magic trick is on full view. We see him be Tyler Durden in moments, but we're yeah. just thinking, oh, he's being affected by Tyler Durden. He's not actually yeah. Tyler Durden. And, but and he's I think, telling us, like he tells us in the very yes. first minute right here. The demolitions committee of Project Mayhem wrapped the foundation columns of a dozen buildings with blasting gelatin. In two minutes, primary charges will blow base charges and a few square blocks will be reduced to smoldering rubble. I know this. Because Tyler knows this. Now, Chuck Palahniuk, when he was writing the book, he didn't think that they were the same person. He only realized about two-thirds of the way through that they could be because they acted as one. And then he started to adjust the book to that. Obviously, you know, Ed Norton and, and Brad Pitt know this. David Fincher knows this. And they're creating this world. But I, I think that the reason why this payoff is so earned and it doesn't feel like a shitty twist is because the way that they show you that these characters are the same is also part of this central theme that the movie is talking about. It's like, this is happening right in front of your eyes. This is happening. Open your eyes, see what's going on. You know, they go into the projectionist booth. They show the scene. Now that's the only moment I'd like to talk about as far as a flaw. They say Ed Norton has night jobs. What night job is showing Snow White at like a 10 o'clock show? Like it seemed like he really is showing a nighttime movie. Uh, I get the rest, but that that really was, I was like, this is a night movie? Like, this is not like, uh, you know, a scene from Pearl. Uh, but by the way, that whole scene is anachronistic, right? Because there's no such thing as cigarette burns. That was something that Chuck Palahniuk created that then became part of this conversation around how projectionists switch reels. And it's like, no, no, no that, that, that's not true. We don't do, it doesn't happen like that. But it is like David Fincher announcing, in essence, hey, here's how movies work. And by the way, I'm going to point to the corner of the screen and now you're going to be so aware that you're in a movie. A movie doesn't come all on one big reel. It comes on a few. So someone has to be there to switch the projectors at the exact moment that one reel ends and the next one begins. If you look for it, you can see these little dots come into the upper right-hand corner of the screen. In the industry, we call them cigarette burns. That's the cue for a changeover. He flips the projectors, movie keeps right on going, and nobody in the audience has any idea. And then he keeps using that. He keeps using that idea. I mean, there's like parts of this movie where he makes the margins of the screen kind of like shake back and forth so that you can see like the holes of the film kind of running through, you know, where like Brad Pitt's looking at you and like all of a sudden everything's all shaky. And he's announcing like you are watching a product that is a trick. This is a story. Be aware of what I'm doing here. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, 
Joe sends text from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get shipped same day delivery. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com/slash hi. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. This idea that the movie is tricking us, society is tricking our characters, starts to fuck with your head. Because you even said early on in this episode, play it back, Josh. No, but you said like our hero. <laughs> I, I don't know if Ed Norton is our hero. I, I think Ed Norton is our protagonist. I, I don't think that Ed Norton is a good guy. I think that this movie offers up a problem and then presents a childish solution to it. People miss that message. Like the message is, don't let society define you. Don't let your job define you. Break out of the system. And what this movie says is like, break out of that system and then go into old school stereotypes. Like it, it kind of replaces one system for another. Be primal, be instinctual. Just because our hero is doing that or going down that path, it doesn't mean that that's the right path. I think that that's something that people have really kind of missed. Like the idea is like, yes, it's in front of you. Go fucking fight, feel pain, feel what it's like. Don't have anything to lose. Make your judgments, do your things. But it's just replacing one thing for another thing. It's very childlike. Well, there's lines in this movie where it's like, wear one leather jacket for the rest of your life. That sounds like what a kid might say or the way that he treats Marla. He pushes her away. I like you. I'm not going to talk to you. I Get away from me, right? It's very childlike. The whole movie is presenting a very emotionally uninformed response to loneliness, to feeling out of the norm. And, and in a weird way, I'd look at like a character like Bob, who is in the book, and I'm going to use this term because it's in the movie, but like who has tits, right? Like this idea, like Bob is kind of the perfect example of what we should be. Be who you are. You have tits, you have tits. Who cares? Right. It, you don't have to be anything other than that, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, because like this movie has been called it's been said that it's like espousing anything. It's like espousing anarchy. It's espousing fascism. It's espousing nihilism. You know, it's espousing whatever people think it is. And, and Fincher's always been really adamant that he says that this movie does not have any direction and it does not have any solution and it doesn't have any idea how to fix this. It's more just about. How are we feeling? What do we feel is wrong? But there's not a real suggestion. And I feel like it's kind of built in here that you shouldn't be trusting that this movie is offering you the solution. Right. Because everything it says that it's against, it winds up being for. You know, they're like, we're against kind of being like factory stamped, conformist, Ikea, like homogenous cultures. We want to be individuals. And then what happens at the end of the movie? Everybody's wearing black and they've shaved their heads and they've become this uniform cult. You know, right. they're not individuals. They're a mob. They're like, we don't like franchises. Franchises suck. What happens at the end? Fight Club is franchised all across America. 
You know, and it's just right yes. there. We're, we're disobeying our own rules. We're replacing one culture for the next, right? It's like we're, we're taking away consumers' culture and we're going back to like hunter-gatherer culture, right? Like that's still a culture that you're abiding by. It's not saying fuck the rules. It's saying replace the rules. It's the easiest thing to find somebody that has rules that you like or that make you feel good than addressing the, the bigger issue. I think there's a, a constant battle of like, I didn't get the American dream. I'm not the rock star. I mean, the amount of stuff in this movie that is in public discourse today is wild. I mean, obviously Snowflake, which I think I didn't even understand was something that Chuck Palahniuk came up with in his book. We're not unique snowflakes, but this idea like of like, we're mad that we weren't given the life that we were shown. And when you watch it, I had this thought watching it this time where, you know, we're getting all of these speeches that so much of me empathizes with, you know, where are we in life? What are we here for? We're not getting treated fairly by a society. All things that I can kind of feel. I'm like, we live in a place where my country won't give us health care and we're just numbers and blah, 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 blah. And why are we funding all these things and that, you know, aren't helping the common people? And are we cogs? Like, I'm very empathetic to this argument about living in a society that's not necessarily taking care of people the right way or respecting people the right way. But then there's parts where you're watching this movie. They're like suddenly, you know, blowing up buildings. We're seeing that on the news. Commissioner, Commissioner, could you please tell us what you think is happening here? We believe this is one of many recent acts of vandalism around the city, somehow related to underground boxing clubs. We will be coordinating a rigorous investigation. That was Police Commissioner Jacobs, who just arrived on the scene here of a four-alarm fire that broke out about an hour ago. Live from the Parker Morris building, Lauren Sanchez, back to you in the studio. It was just What the fuck did you guys do? And then they're kidnapping the police commissioner in matching uniforms, matching butler uniforms, wait staff uniforms at this banquet, dragging them into the bathroom, threatening him like this. Fine. You're going to call off your rigorous investigation. You're going to publicly state that there is no underground group. Or these guys are going to take your balls. They're going to send one to the New York Times, one to the L.A. Times press release style. Look, the people you are after are the people you depend on. We cook your meals. We haul your trash, we connect your calls, we drive your ambulances, we guard you while you sleep. Do not fuck with us. And suddenly when I was watching that scene, I was like, oh, we're just watching The Dark Knight from the Joker's point of view. Right. Yeah, I love that. Like, this is just exactly what the Joker would do. Hiding his people in like uniforms, then suddenly kidnapping the police commissioner and being like. You are betraying us and this is what we need and you will let our people run around and we will be the pranksters who like run this whole city. This is a Joker movie. It's just like, at what point do you realize that Tyler Durden is not the good guy? That he's not like the coolest person in the world, which takes so long because he looks so cool. Well, looking cool is also part of that, right? Like wanting to look cool, right? The reason why Tyler Durden is created in his psyche is like, that's who looks cool to him. That's what he thinks is cool. He's saying cool shit. It's like, stop, like Tyler Durden is an ad agency for whatever he is. You know, instead of the idea of being like, be who you want to be, be yourself, be free. There's this great ending of the book, which is not in the movie, where basically 
Tyler Durden meets God or, or you know, Ed, Ed Norton's character meets God and, and, you know, goes, I met God across his long walnut desk with his diplomas hanging in the wall behind him. And God asks me, why? Why did I cause so much pain? Didn't I realize that each of us is sacred, unique snowflake of special, unique specialness? Can't I see that we're manifestations of love? I look at God behind his desk, taking notes on a pad, but God's got this all wrong. We're not special. We're not crap or trash either. We just are. We just are. And what happens just happens. And God says, no, that's not right. Yeah, well, whatever. You can't teach God anything. I thought that was interesting. Like this idea of like, he's trying to teach God. <laughs> God, <laughs> God like, right. It was great. It's yeah. a great, like, it's a great end to this book. But this idea like, we are special. We are unique. Be unique. Don't be part of a group. Don't be part of a mob. Don't be part, you know, of it. Like if Fight Club was something that just existed and a handful of people liked it, whatever, great, fine. That's unique. That's unique to you. But the idea that it becomes about an army, about a larger thing, it's like it became an identity. It's like it's easy to fall in line. It's easy to get. I mean, it's cult mentality, right? Mm -hmm. All of it is cult mentality. Oh, yes, this person has the answers. So, hence, I don't have to have the answers. I don't have to do that digging. This person is going to tell me what to say and do. And I just love that this book ends with him and God and him telling God, you got it wrong. <laughs> As opposed to here where he's like, God specifically hates you. It's the greatest moment of your life, man. And you're off somewhere missing. I am not. Shut up. Our fathers were our models for God. If our fathers bailed, what does that tell you about God? No, 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 I don't. Listen to me. I have to consider the possibility that God does not like you. He never wanted you. In all probability, he hates you. This is not the worst thing that can happen. It isn't. We don't need him. We don't agree. I gotta go. Fuck damnation, man. Fuck redemption. We are God's unwanted children. So be it. Okay, so what I admire about the creation of Tyler Durden, just as a screen character, is they don't costume him to look like I'm just the typical cool guy that you see in these kind of cool movies where he's wearing like, I don't know, black jeans, black t-shirt, black leather jacket, you know, that kind of like look. Right. Just like, I'm cool. I'm tough. They make him so individual in his costuming. I mean, he's wearing like mesh shirts that say hustler. He's wearing bathrobes with like coffee cups on them. Like, he is dressed in a way that I've never seen a character dressed. Like, so fun. Just cutting against this idea of, like, here's what tough, cool guy masculinity looks like. What if it just looks wild? You know, and, like, the costume designer, Michael Kaplan, he came out of doing Blade Runner. You know, like, he's amazing at creating, like, the look of a world. And basically, the challenge that David Fincher gave to him was, like, when it comes to Pitt's character, you cannot go too far in making him look like an individual Except he did go too far. There's like a moment where he put Brad Pitt in a tube top and David Venture was like, absolutely not. A tube top is one step too far. But other than that, like, I love this character design. You know, he's like flashing skin. His pants are sort of falling off. Everything's colorful, old. It looks like handpicked. You know, I went to a thrift store and I found this coat. Just that kind of innovative, creative thing that creates a look. I mean, when we had our dying Halloween party, we had two people show up as Tyler Durden and we also had two Marlas and they didn't know each other and they all just found each other and took pictures, which was really great. But you want to dress like this, you know? And also the costuming that they used for Marla was like based on Judy Garland, like old school Judy Garland at the end of her life when she had some money and some idea of class. 
but she was like depressed. This is like if this woman, if Marla went to thrift stores to find the clothes after Judy Garland died and bought them for like a dollar. Can I just say something that I'm realizing as we're talking about it? You know, if this is becoming this movie that's a hero to incels, right? Like this idea, right? It's so interesting because I also feel like so much of the pushback of gay culture, trans culture is from those communities, which I would argue gay culture, trans culture is uniquely personal. Saying I want to be who I am, how I feel. I think this movie is wrongly interpreted as saying the only way back is through getting back to your masculine and and pushing all this sort of stuff. But what I think is so comical is we are in a society right now of people saying, break the rules, do what they want to do. But people react so negatively to it because they don't want anyone to break the rules. They just want to create a system where they can do whatever they want or be above everything, right? And tell people how to act. This is the same thing that the book is doing. Like, I'm going to tell God he's wrong. I'm going to tell this person they are wrong. What a completely boneheaded reading we're getting of this really interesting idea. Yeah, I mean, everything in it is just deliberately scrambled. Because as I'm listening to you talk and hearing about like this movie and stacking it up against things like the American dream, you know, like mom, dad, picket fence, two and a half kids. This movie is definitely not espousing that, but then it kind of pretends like it is sometimes. There's that scene where Edward Norton's like watching Brad Pitt take a bath, basically, when they're like best friends and kind of their mm-hmm. romantic, most uh, bonded part of the movie after they form the fight club. And they're talking about how they blame a lot of the problems in their life on their dads, specifically telling them that they had to follow this American dream order. But then also saying maybe part of the problem is they didn't have enough dads, but then also saying maybe we don't need women at all. And they're going through all of these different types of like family arrangements and being like suggesting them and also saying why they don't work and then suggesting them anyways. There is no solution there. He like did this every six years. He goes to a new city and starts a new family. Fucker setting up franchises. My dad never went to college. So it's real important that I go. That sounds familiar. So I graduate, I call him up long distance. I said, Dad, now what? He says, get a job. Same here. Now I'm 25. Make my yearly call again. Say, Dad, now what? He says, I don't know. Get married. God, I mean, you can't get married. I'm a 30-year-old boy. We're a generation of men raised by women. I'm wondering if another woman is really the answer we need. I mean, you know, you look at the way that these guys run the house. They're cooking and cleaning and doing all these roles. They're doing modern roles. Yes, yeah. it's for a greater good, but it's is it? And it is so affectionate. And you're right. Every time this movie says, like, here's how this should go. I mean, most famously when they're like, here are the rules of Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Third rule of Fight Club, someone yells stop, goes limp, taps out, the fight is over. Fourth rule, only two guys to a fight. Fifth rule, one fight at a time, fellas. Sixth rule, no shirts, no shoes. Seventh rule, fights will go on as long as they have to. And the eighth and final rule, if this is your first night at Fight Club, 
You have to fight. What happens after this? We watch them basically break every single rule. Every single rule. They're telling people about Fight Club. Edward Norton's almost getting his balls cut off because he's telling people about Fight Club, which is so, I think, a beautiful little bit of like circular irony. You know, he starts this movie faking testicular cancer and then winds up actually having his balls in genuine peril. But he's breaking that rule. He's making fights go on too long. He's like, he's not following everything that he set out. And if you're watching this movie, you know that it's all about hypocrisy, which I think is done with such just lightness. I mean, David Fincher's line about this movie is he called it, quote, a serious film made by deeply unserious people, which seems dead on. And he also said he didn't think this movie was violent enough. He was really worried that people would watch this movie and be like, I thought there'd be more punching. He he was worried that we might as well, as he put it, call it Glee Club. Well, look, I think that this movie suffered some slings and arrows because of 20th Century Fox freaking the fuck out. I mean, they were mortified that Brad Pitt wore that rubber glove in the sex scene with Marla. And that was something that Brad Pitt just added to it. It got a big laugh, so they let it go. Then they didn't want uh, Marla to say some of the more choice things that she said. You know, she said at one point, like, I want to have your abortion. And he's like, right, we'll change it. And then uh, he changed it to, you know, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. Like, no, 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 that's <laughs> not good the either. Story is the studio is like, it can't be the abortion line. You could have it be anything you want. And he's like, promise, promise. I mean, he's basically like, promise like this. Can't have you talking to her about me. Why would I talk Say to her? Say anything about me or what goes on in this house to her or to anybody. We're done. Now promise me. Okay. You promise? Yeah, I promise. Promise. I just said I promise. What? what? It's three times you promise. If only I had wasted a couple of minutes and gone to watch Marla Singer die, none of this would have happened. And then the studio was like, yes, we promise. You can change it to anything else as long as it's not that. And he's like, great. Haven't been fucked like that since grade school. And they're like, no. I'm always a big believer that Sometimes notes help you cultivate something that's a middle ground, right? It's not exactly what the studio wants. It's not exactly what you want. But you get to a place that might be a more palatable version of it. I think that this movie is palatable. I think that like, I think that what we see in this movie, it's just disturbing enough that maybe if it pushed a little bit too much, it may not have broken through this way. It may not have become this cult hit. Um, because it would have been probably too alienating on some level, potentially. Who knows? You know, you watch it now and you're like, oh, I would hear a line like Helena Bonham Carter's line in a fucking ABC show at 10 o'clock, right? It doesn't feel <laughs> too, too aggressive anymore, like what we're what we're seeing and what we're doing now. But I do think that there is something about this movie where those little things, I'm not saying it should have been, you know, uh, neutered, but it, but I do feel like a couple of those choices might have made it more accessible, might have made it more watchable. This idea that it immediately becomes a hit on DVD and what that culture is. Like this is a, at a moment where like DVDs are king and you want to talk about hidden messages. The DVD is full of hidden messages on the FBI warning. There's like a Tyler Durden thing like in the menus. There's so much hidden shit in that, you know. I remember like you remember those like ads that they did about don't get touched below the bathing suit area. Oh, I remember that? I pulled those because they were oh, David really? Fincher's first idea of like how to advertise this movie because he hated the first trailers. He thought the trailers made it look like like a Rocky movie, like a really right. dumb Rocky movie. And he was like, this is not what we're selling. It's going to make everybody mad. And the studio's like, well, we don't care. So he made these two. He made two PSAs that he just wanted to slip into theaters with no comment. One starring Pitt, one starring Norton. They played like this. 
This is a non-smoking theater, so please, no smoking. For the enjoyment of others, please refrain from conversation during the feature presentation. At this time, please turn off all cell phones and pagers. And remember, no one has the right to touch you in your bathing suit area. And then at the end, they just had fightclub.com because this was early in that dot-com marketing. Right. Where like having a website for your movie was everything. It was like joining a secret club. Well, I think that what you're seeing is Fincher avoided what a movie like Drive hit. Like Drive was marketed like a fucking Fast and Furious movie. And then you watch that movie and Drive is a lot more in the vein of Fight Club than it is Fast and Furious by, by a long shot. And then you get people mad. They're mad at you. Like, how dare you? I wanted to see Ryan Gosling be cool, drive a fast car. I don't want to see him having like mental breakdowns and beating the shit out of people in an elevator. You know, uh, <laughs> you know that that this is the problem sometimes too. It's like you risk alienating an audience when you market a film poorly. Fox probably should have trusted David Fincher because one of the core ironies to me about this movie is that here we have this whole thing that's like name-checking corporations, all these corporations we hate. Oh, here's Brad Pitt monologuing about these corporations he doesn't like. Do you know what a duvet is? Comfort. It's a blanket. Just a blanket. Now, why do guys like you and I know what a duvet is? Is this essential to our survival? In the hunter-gatherer sense of the word? No. What are we then? Consumers. Right. We are consumers. We are byproducts of a lifestyle obsession. Murder, crime, poverty, these things don't concern me. What concerns me are celebrity magazines, television with 500 channels, some guy's name on my underwear, Rogaine, Viagra, Olestra. Martha Stewart. Fuck Martha Stewart. Martha's polishing the brass on the Titanic. It's all going down, man. So fuck off with your sofa units and string green stripe patterns. I say never be complete. I say stop being perfect. I say let, let's evolve. Let the chips fall where they may. That's me. And I could be wrong. Maybe it's a terrible tragedy. No, it's just, it's just stuff. It's not tragedy. Well, you did lose a lot of versatile solutions for modern living. And yet, who is directing this movie? It's like the greatest commercial director of all time. I mean, David Fincher has made commercials for like Nike, Coke, Pepsi, AT&T, Apple, Budweiser, Levi's, Calvin Klein, Converse, Adidas, Motorola, Hewitt-Packard, Chanel, The Gap. Like any giant corporation, David Fincher has helped sell them. So in a way, I kind of trust that he would know the ads that could sell this. He would understand what that is. But also, it's almost like he's looking at the damage he hath wrought and saying, I'm a little bit sorry about this. But also, after Fight Club comes out, I'm going to make commercials for Heineken that star Brad Pitt. Like, here's here's like a 2005 commercial for Heineken that the whole setup is like Brad Pitt so needs a Heineken that he's going to leave his apartment and deal with the paparazzi to go get one. Mr. Pitt, I'll just let you out. No, I'm just going to... I'm fine. I mean, it also related to this. I pulled just like this David Fincher, Orville Redenbacher ad because I just wanted to. Hello, I'm Orville Redenbacher. These MP3 players get lighter every day. Would you believe this little baby holds 30 gigs? But if you want light and fluffy, you've got to try my famous gourmet popping corn. 
But you know what's kind of interesting about all of this, though, is I feel like Fincher, Brad Pitt, Edward Norton all kind of have these interesting ties to the idea of like corporations and branding. I mean, like Brad Pitt at this point, you know, 10 years after his big Thelma and Louise success is thinking of himself as a brand in ways that make him really unhappy. You know, he said uh, in an interview when this movie came out, he was like, at this point, you think you can go into a grocery store and know what aisle to find me. I'm trying to pervert that expectation with Fight Club. It's so like him breaking through branding here, breaking through his own branding with Tyler Durden. And a weird fun fact about Edward Norton is that his grandfather invented the shopping mall. The shopping wow. mall. Right? So it's like these guys responsible for all of this are part of it or part of this machine being like, we hate this machine. How can we blow it up? You see, this is what I disagree with because I don't think the book, nor do I think that this movie is saying fuck society. It's actually saying something a little bit more nuanced than that. It's not about answering, like, what's the solution? It's kind of like just saying, like, this is interesting. We're at a weird point in our world where men can't find their own emotions. They can't connect to things, right? It's looking at something, right? It's looking at, like, what's going on for people who feel directionless. Here's a problem, and here's a dumb solution to it, a childlike solution to it. And I think that people can, I think people, I guess, misconstrue it as like, this is David Fincher going, I hate credit cards and Ikea. I'm against this. It's like, no, it's, it's kind of like a, just a case study. Although it's the same way that you would do it on anything. I, I think that that's, it's not about commercializations and brands as much as it is about our reaction to them and how it can spiral people in different ways. That's, I guess what I'm saying. I mean, I hear that, but I think there's also something to it where it's tapping into a feeling of like, a bunch of kids on a playground and they're chanting like, what do we want? Something else than this modern life. What right. does that look like? We have no fucking idea. And I mean, it's funny, like, because here, you know, this movie ends with blowing up all of the buildings in kind of a romantic looking scene where, you know, he's holding hands with Marla. They're watching the destruction. They're playing beautiful pixie song that I find actually deeply romantic. Terrifying the studios here. Definitely terrifying the Chinese censors. Have you heard about this Chinese ending for Fight Club? Oh, I'm obsessed with Chinese endings because Chinese endings are notorious. I will explain this one because I have one okay. that might blow your mind. Okay. Well, what's going to happen is I'm going to play the end of the movie in China and then I'm going to read out loud what the ending, like, what do you call it? Title card? End card? Yeah. End card? Then I'm going to read card, what sure. the end card says over the music that they have chosen. And this is how China ended this film. Through the clue provided by Tyler, the police rapidly figured out the whole plan and arrested all criminals, successfully preventing the bomb from exploding. After the trial, Tyler was sent to lunatic asylum, receiving psychological treatment. He was discharged from the hospital in 2012. <laughs> the end. <laughs> okay. Now, obviously, this movie rustled some feathers in China. You can understand they want to change the ending because they don't want to have people rise up. I understand that. Do you know that they also did that to The Rise of Gru, the Minions movie? <laughs> no. Yes. They flipped the end of the <laughs> Minions movie. At the end, yeah, Rise of Gru is obviously the rise of Gru. Gru is a bad person. So in this ending, the movie ends before it actually ends. And a title card comes up and it says, Gru has returned to his family. Years later, his biggest accomplishment is being the father to his three girls. 
<laughs> like not that Gru grew up and became the bad guy, which is the character in the first movie. Because in the original film, Gru and Wild Knuckles, they ride off together into the sunset so Gru can become a bad person. <laughs> it's like, oh, what so is going on? Well, it's so funny. I mean, there was this huge controversy when the movie came out because one of the people who was so mad about it was Rosie O'Donnell. What? Hey, this was when Rosie O'Donnell had her talk show, right? Yeah. So the week that Fight Club comes out, Rosie O'Donnell goes on her show and she's like, do not see this movie. It is depraved. And she hated the movie so much that not only did she tell people specifically, do not go see it. She then spoiled the entire twist. She was like, and by the way, Edward Norton is Tyler Durden. And so that nobody else would go watch it. It's so <laughs> fucked. It's so funny. And they were like, of course, like Brad Pitt was very, very mad. She said that at one point, Courtney Love came on the show after that and was like, do you know how mad you made Edward Norton? They were so furious with that. And she's sort of apologized, but sort of not apologized. There was kind of no stopping this movie, even though nobody saw it. Like, I was finding these articles from a year after the movie came out about all the real-life fight clubs that were popping up everywhere. Mm. Everywhere you could think of. There are fight clubs at Princeton. There are fight clubs at BYU. There are fight clubs at church groups about, like, preparing to battle for the Lord's soul or whatever. There were fight clubs, of course, in Silicon Valley. And I loved this one because, like, the article about the fight clubs in Silicon Valley gave a bunch of people's names. So I, like, looked them all up later on LinkedIn. And, like, one of them is at Apple today and another one is at TiVo. And another one said in the article that he skipped his first wedding anniversary because he wanted to go to a fight club. And when I went to his LinkedIn, it said that his top skill was emotional intelligence. You know, I mean, this is what what is so crazy is, like, why are we in such a race to have somebody tell us what to do. I, you know, I, I've been watching, you know, you watch all these, or at least if you're married to my wife, you watch a lot of documentaries on murder, but also a lot on cults. You know, you, you, you <laughs> well, look at this. Well, what a huge Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, from, from husbands murdering their wives to cult leaders, uh, we really take it all in. But there's this idea like it's much easier to feel something when it's physical. It's a lot harder to find ways to connect with yourself and others when it's not. And, you know, there's a moment in the movie where they choreographed this fight scene with Ed Norton and and Brad Pitt, and they were all safe about it. And Fincher told Norton, like, no, actually punch him in the ear, really punch him in the ear. And that's that moment out in front of the bar where Brad Pitt's like, fuck, you got my ear. Like, that was real to get that real reaction from him. Yeah, I mean, it's something, yes, pain, but the pain of losing a parent, the pain of a heartbreak, the pain of missing a goal that you had set for yourself, not replaced by a punch, not replaced by a chemical burn. But I think that people want to be like, well, I want to feel something. It's cutting mentality in a way. I mean, I was nervous about telling this story, so I hope it comes across with all the tender feelings that I actually did feel in the moment. What what if right now it just cut and we're like, anyway, so this movie was received. <laughs> <laughs> well, the story is like about, I don't know, 12 or 15 years ago, a group of my girlfriends and I decided to have a one day fight club. Whoa. Yeah. Like in, in my friend Jen's backyard, because there are four of us and we all were like, you know what? We've never been punched in our mm-hmm. life. And we've never thrown a punch. And I've always been scared, like, what if I get it, you know, mugged or something? Like, I'm so scared of getting hurt or what it, what a punch would feel like. And I'm so scared of throwing a punch. 
that I was like, maybe this is a good idea. Maybe we should do like a fight club just so we can all know what a punch feels like. And we can all know what it feels like to throw a punch in this way. We feel more comfortable. So we did this like four girl fight club in my friend's backyard. And I kind of get it. Like I kind of get the best part of what this movie is saying a fight club is, which is like you're facing your friend and, you know, we built our way up. It was like, punch me at 25% in the stomach, punch me at 50% in the stomach, punch me at 75. And then we worked our way up to a hundred and my friend, Jenny Amato punched me so hard at a hundred that I felt it for like three days. It's so much trust. Like you're trusting her. She's trusting you. It's like hard to throw that punch. You know, it's really hard to do it. And we felt super bonded by the end of it. And then we never did it again. I was like, we're never doing this again because like the fourth girl was like, I need a black eye. And she made us all punch her in the face until she got a black eye. And that was the worst thing ever. And then I just, I, that killed it. But it's kind of a sacred memory. I can understand the connection. Well, I mean, isn't that what fighting in a dojo is? Like fighting under a little bit. I'm not saying don't engage in things that like physically tax you or what you seem to be doing is saying exactly anti what this movie is doing. Like you trust your friends, you love your friends and you only would trust your friends to do this. Like this movie, I think is saying I need to feel something. So give me this punch. Give me this feeling of pain. Give me like wake me up. I think it's a difference. I'll come out and say this too. I don't think it's my favorite Fincher movie by any stretch. There's some cool things in it, but I watch it. I'm like, I get how this movie took people by storm. You know, it's interesting to look at. There's some really amazing elements to the choices, the cinematography of it. It looks grimy. It looks like if that house had a lens, that's what the lens and the lighting look like. Like the everything felt like that house, you know, looking at it in this grime through this muck. It really, I mean, Fincher, I think, has a distinctive style, or at least did back then after Seven. It's created these iconic characters that I think are confused because what you said is true. Half of what he's saying is right. His solution is wrong. He names the problem and then gives you a bad solution, which is, I think, what any cult does, right? It, it like it, it presents to you an answer to a problem that you might not have articulated perfectly, but because they have, you think, oh, well, their answer has to be right. I think it's my favorite of his films. Really? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I like Social Network. I've been nervous to watch Seven again because that movie always makes me feel like I need to take seven showers when it's I over. I love Seven, yeah. I mean, maybe we should do Seven at some point. I would, I would, I'd be totally down to do Seven. I don't like his new one, The Killer. I don't think it's very good. Ooh, um, okay. But I think this movie has such just like visual panache. I think it's just so perfectly executed. I think it might be my favorite. All right. So let's just talk about it for a second. Fight Club, Seven, Gone Girl, Zodiac, Girl with Panic the Dragon Room. Tattoo, Panic Room, The Game, Social Network. Uh, Alien 3 and Mank. I don't know who's going to stand up yeah, for those. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Benjamin Button. Oh, yeah. I always forget about Benjamin Button. You know, I, I think right now our, our friends over at Blank Check are doing a whole Fincher series. You know, Seven to me is a great movie. It doesn't necessarily capture to me what I think Fincher is amazing at fully. It's great. It's a great cop movie, right? It's amazing. Uh, Zodiac, the same way. I think Zodiac's a great movie. I really like Gone Girl. You know, Girl with Dragon Tattoo, I thought the original one was better. Social Network's kind of amazing. And Benjamin Button, I probably will never watch again. You know, uh, <laughs> maybe we should just as just for kicks. Yeah, what if it's actually better than we remember. What if we watch Benjamin Button and we're suddenly like blown away? 
I mean, if it's if, if I'm picking something to watch over, if I only have one, I think I probably watch seven. I like seven. I, I, there's something about seven where I'm like, yeah, it's all fucked up, but I also feel like it's another one of those movies that, like, I think set a tone and then people copied it without kind of the style of it. Well, I think where Fight Club gets the edge for me is like Fight Club has like a lightness sometimes. It has like a joy. There's like right. pleasure in right. it. And when I think of seven, I just think like, oh, I'm locked in a tiny gloomy box and the world right. is horrible. And Fight Club is seductive. I, I, I agree with that. There's a style to it. I don't it know. is funny this is, though, because yeah. like, were you expecting as we prep for this episode how many people would call Fight Club this generation's The Graduate? You know, a movie that you know I don't really love The Graduate, and I have a lot yeah. of issues with The Graduate. And I think I mean I guess you could say in this movie them being like blowing up things, nitroglycerin is like their solution, like plastics. None of this don't. No, it's all dumb. It's all dumb. Yeah, and there's also a love triangle in both of them, huh? But like this movie being positioned as a generation's graduate makes me kind of nervous because it seems so much angrier than The Graduate. But then I guess it just seems more destructive. Like The Graduate feels like destroying your intimate relationships. And this one feels like destroying the world because you have no intimate relationships. Well, it's like it's it's people who can't feel, right? It's like, it, like, well, you, like you have this movie and The Matrix come out in the same year. It's about, I don't belong here. I'm not connected to things here. I'm like a loner. I need to find community. Matrix, obviously, he finds community, and it's like your whole life is a lie. Fucking destroy the machines, right? Like it's it it like the answer is destruction on some level. It's it's like you aren't alone, and because you're not alone, it gives you the right to blow shit up. I was really into what the rewatch of this, but then I'm looking at it and I'm like, is it my favorite? I don't know because I rated Zodiac on my letterbox a little bit lower. Uh, and then I was like, people are like, you only gave Zodiac this much. It's one of his best movies. I'm like, yeah, but I think there's better ones. But I'm not, now I'm not sure. Now I'm not sure. Maybe maybe Fight Club is the perfect distillation of Fincher. But, you know, it's and I'm just looking at these movies in 99 really quickly, too. Like, if you look at, like, these movies, they represent American beauty, right? That idea of what we're supposed to be, what, what we feel. South Park, bigger, longer, uncut, right? That's, like, a completely different type of railing against society and what we're fed eyes wide shut comes out in 99 Blair Witch Project comes out in 99 Magnolia I think that Tom Cruise's performance in Magnolia kind of articulates this too Tom Cruise's character is very much like the Tyler Durden character right but then one question falls apart yeah you know, what I find so fascinating about it is like when I watch a movie from 1999 I feel like I'm watching something that feels so from the past because everybody's big problem is like, there's no more history. What are we here for? What's the point? Right. Like we've solved it all. There's like that whole just struggle of ennui in all of these 1999 films, not knowing that like the next year is going to be a crazy election. And then after that's going to be 9-11 and then everything is going to fall apart. But what's so striking is like, they feel both like they have one foot in the past and yet these are the movies that I feel like are still the touchstones that are shaping what it's like to be young and on the internet today. Like this, I mean, every NBA basketball player dresses like Tyler Durden right now and God bless them. And, and look, I mean, I'm also, I, I named all those movies. I didn't even name election. You know, this is a moment where I think that we're on the precipice of something different. Something is happening. And I think something did happen, which is yes, consumerism is at a rampant degree, but now the access to consumerism with the the way the internet kind of explodes after this is completely different. 
you know, so there are these things. It's like, yes, now you can go on Ikea. You can shop at any point. You can get things delivered to you within hours. You know, we're in this different world. And obviously that didn't all happen overnight. But this is the movie that I feel like is staring into the abyss. It doesn't necessarily have the answers, but it's like, how do we, how do we not fall into this abyss? How do we get out of this abyss? You know, movies like this and of course, Never Been Kissed are probably the movies that really answered that. Okay, we can do Never Been Kissed. You want to do it for Valentine's Day? <laughs> you know, I think I think it's interesting to kind of even look back at some of the older episodes that we have done on this show to think about like where 99 put us. And I, I loved our episode that we did on The Matrix. We kind of talk about some bigger theories in this. Another movie that I think put people in this thing of like how they want to live their lives, make this choice, red pill, blue pill. And I, I loved our conversation that we had about that. It's here on The Matrix that like Keanu gets really close with his stunt double, you know, Chad Zaleski, who like doubles for him. And while he's doubling for Keanu Reeves, like breaks his ribs on this movie, like breaks a knee, I think, dislocates a shoulder and then eventually directs John Wick and puts and puts Keanu in it and becomes like, I think, like a new version of like updating what an action film looks like. I think those movies have been like super influential again. So it's kind of like Keanu just keeps popping up and being like, ta-da! We were bored with one kind of fighting, and now I will do a new one again. Well, I I think one of the things that makes this movie really interesting was this is true kung fu. Like, these characters are learning real martial arts and putting them together. And this legendary Hong Kong stunt coordinator, uh, Wu Ping, he was like, no, I'm not going to do this movie because this is just... it's ridiculous. Uh, I'll do it if you give me this amount of money. And they're like, well, we're not going to give you that amount of money. And he's like, all right, how about this? I'll do the movie... If I have complete control of the fights, I'll have to train the actors with my own team for months before you even start shooting. And the Wachowskis say, okay, do it. And I think it's this idea of empowering someone whose art is that, like the art of fight. Like that's why everyone looks so amazing in this film. It's not cheated. And I know we talked about like actors who go to like army camp for two weeks and get dirty and they feel like, oh, I'm, I now know what it was like to fight in a war. But truly this turned them into amazing martial artists. So that's a a little taste of 99 and we'll finish up our series when we do Lake Placid, right? <laughs> uh, another I cannot wait great... to the year 2065 when we finally get to Lake Placid. But by the way, another 99 movie. I'm 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 fascinated now. Office Space. I want to do mm-hmm. Office Space actually. I, I really want to do, do Office that. Space because I think Office Space is also talking about this. For next episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we often like look backwards as new movies come out, and this is a movie about creating your own culture of like survival, and. I thought it was interesting that, you know, with the new Hunger Games film coming out, we would go and look at a movie where you literally have to fight for your survival, fight for your town, and look back at the original Hunger Games, a movie that truly transformed, like Harry Potter was one of these books that came out, it took the world by storm, and this first film was, you know, a giant, giant hit, and they're still making... (laughs) They're still making Hunger Games movies. Yeah, I feel like this movie tapped into something that young people were feeling in like 2012. Not so different from this. To me, it always reminded me of like Battle Royale, which, you know, which I think was something that I don't think you could release here because it was too upsetting. Uh, Anyway, I'm excited to talk about Hunger Games with you. Hunger Games is available wherever you get your 
Films. You can watch it on streaming on Peacock or the Roku channel. You can also uh, check out your local public library. Uh, but next week, we'll be talking about the 2012 two hours and 22 minutes. Get ready. Buckle up. Ten minutes longer than Fight Club. Is it worth it? <laughs> we'll see. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, see the official API list of Unspooled films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipt. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipt, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipt.com. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.